Exodus 30. We're going to read the entire chapter. Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long and a cubit wide and two cubits high, its horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the Covenant Law where I will meet you, meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight so that incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Do not offer on this altar or any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, Each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so so they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels, of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant calamus, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel and a hin of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant law, the table and all its articles, the lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them so they will be most holy, and whatever touches them will be holy. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, This is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on anyone else's body 
and do not make any other oil using the same formula. It is sacred, and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like it and puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from their people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, gum resin, onicha, and galbanum, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to a powder and place it in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law in the Tent of Meeting, where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes incense like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from their people. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, I hope as we were reading through Exodus 30, a lot of this sounded very familiar. Lots of similar patterns. Maybe even you're starting to have that feeling of deja vu. Haven't we thought about this particular object before? Last week, we saw the priests anointed with oil as part of their consecration. This week, God gives us the detailed recipe for how to make that oil. Last week, we thought about, um, well, in fact, for a number of the previous weeks, some of the different items of furniture. And this week, we've got some more items with the altar of incense, the basin for washing. All of that fits with what we've looked at recently. And then we get to the atonement money. And I wonder when anybody else, as Ryan was reading that, had the same experience I had when I first read that this week of, what's that doing here? Um, well, what I want to show you this evening, God willing, is that actually the atonement money, the altar of incense, the bronze basin, they are all connected to one big idea. God is so holy that anything and everything used to worship him must be holy. Now, in one sense, we've been kind of around that theme for a number of weeks, but hopefully as we look at the specifics in this chapter, we are going to see some of those themes afresh and how that holds um, all of this chapter together. So firstly, let's look at the altar of incense, and we'll start with what's familiar, okay? Verses 1 to 6, God explains that it was made to be holy. And in many ways, we've seen this pattern again with a number of the items already made. It's just like the altar for the burnt offerings. Much smaller, but similar pattern. Build it with wood, cover it with gold, and then once it is made, it is, if you remember the color coding of what goes where in the tabernacle, gold goes in the holy place. So you look there at verse 6. It's going to be placed right next to the curtain, separated the holy place from the most holy place. What else is familiar? Well, it was to be set apart for God as holy, which meant as soon as it was built, nobody was to touch it. Hence the, um, the two rings on either side, so you could put a pole through it, and then they could carry it with the pole. And just like the ark, just like the tabernacle itself, just like everything inside it, look at verse 27, the altar of incense had to be anointed with the sacred anointing oil. Hopefully all of that's quite familiar now. Hopefully it's not so familiar that we overlook how awesome that is. Um, I think I'm right to say that this is a one and a half foot by one and a half foot square, three foot tall box. God has declared to his people of old that that box was holy. Because it was to be used 
in the worship of him. And we're reminded of that afresh, secondly, when we see that it was to be maintained as holy. So all these similarities that we have seen, actually this altar is very different from the altar for the burnt offerings. Look at verse 9. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings. Not one of them was to be offered on the altar of incense. We'll get to its purpose in a minute, but it was not to be used in the same way as the altar for the burnt offerings. Hold that thought for a minute. What I want to see is how this altar is to be kept holy. Verse 10, once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns, the lips that came up off the top of the cube. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. And we've mentioned a few times that what we're getting here in Exodus is the blueprint for what the Israelites were to do. And actually, you get the record of what they did in Leviticus, which means we probably won't be going straight into Leviticus, having just been in Exodus. But if you want to see what this looked like, if you go into Leviticus 16, um, verses 18 and 19, as part of all of the instruction that God gave his people for the Day of Atonement, Um, we see what is going on here and what the purpose of sprinkling with the blood is all about. So chapter 16 of Leviticus, verses 18 and 19. uh, Then he, meaning Aaron, and for future generations a high priest, then he shall come to the altar that is before the Lord, this is the altar of burnt incense, and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. See that, verse 19, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. That's a lot of stuff to be done for something that isn't going to be used to burn anything as an altar. No burnt offerings, no sin offerings, no food offerings. None of that was going to be burnt on this altar. All it was going to be used for was burning incense. Which might make you think, isn't that quite a lot of stuff to be done for a room diffuser? And that's the rub, isn't it? As we read so much of these rules as we go through Exodus and into Leviticus. That actually what we do, what I do is I put myself in God's position and decide whether something's too much or acceptable. And in many ways, we're all doing that in all of our life, all the time. But when you're reminded of that habit when it comes to something connected with the worship of God in the old covenant, it's kind of a humbling reminder of the sinfulness of sin. For here is God in his unspeakable holiness, making it possible for sinful people to worship him. And our temptation may well be, if you read it with the same assumptions that I did, to pretend to be God and think, isn't this making too much of it? It's a humbling reminder, isn't it, of the holiness of God and how everything and anything used to worship him must be kept holy. But none of that explains the purpose of the altar of incense. What did it do? Why do we have an altar for burning incense? What did it symbolize? Well, if God told Moses at Sinai, he didn't inspire Moses to record it in Exodus. We don't have the purpose for this altar of incense. But 
I think he revealed it through later writers in the Bible. And I want to show you that the altar of incense symbolized the prayers of the holy. I think we get our first link in that in Psalm 141, where David prays, I call to you, Lord, come quickly to me, hear me when I call to you. May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. And that connection gets even stronger when you get into the New Testament. Um, Do you remember the lovely story of the angel appearing to Zechariah when he was caring and working in the temple? And the angel tells Zechariah that Elizabeth is going to have a baby boy and they're to call him John. Remember that story? Well, all of that happened when Zechariah was doing this. He was the one looking after the altar of the incense. So in Luke chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, we read, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and, ding, ding, burn incense. This is what I want you to hear. And when the time for the burning of incense came... All the assembled worshippers were praying outside. So somewhere between Exodus 30 and Luke 1, there's a pattern developed. The priests didn't just burn the incense on their own. Well, in one sense they did, but at the very same time as they were doing that, there was a growing habit that God's people would come to pray. And That carries on into Revelation. Revelation 5 and verse 9, John sees the 24 elders falling down and praying before God and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John tells us each of those elders, each had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And he makes the same connection in chapter 8. So here's... John describing the seventh seal being opened, and John tells us another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. See the threads that I think we are meant to pull together to understand what is going on with the altar of the incense. They were symbolizing the prayers of God's people. They're not just... um, One of the commentators I read this week described it as masking the smell of all the snuffed-out lamps and the sacrifices. It's like, I'm pretty sure that the smell of the sacrifice in an anthropomorphical kind of way was one of the things that God was pleased to smell. I don't think God wanted to hide that. I think what we're seeing here is this symbolism of the spiritual access that God's people had to pray. But what did that look like? If you were a Jew, when these altars were being built, what would you think when you came to the tabernacle and you knew what was going on on the inside with all this incense being burnt, and there was this growing number of Jews praying, you would think praying to God is a big deal, wouldn't you? It's not just something you do flippantly. But if you followed God's commands, faithful Jews could pray to God. 
And God's amazing grace, we enjoy that same privilege today. Only we don't bring our imperfect prayers to some tabernacle somewhere. I haven't got an altar here with incense burning so that all of your imperfect prayers get perfected by the smell of incense. We don't need that. Because we pray to the one who intercedes at the right hand of the Father for us. He ever lives to intercede for his people. What makes our prayers holy isn't the ritual of the tabernacle. It's the righteousness of the Son. He is the one who is pleading with the Father for us. And I wonder whether as we think about the altar of incense, it would make us see afresh what a privilege it is not just to pray, but to pray to one who perfects our prayers and makes them pleasing to the Father. That's the first thing. Second thing is the bronze basin. The bronze basin shows us that the priests were washed to serve a holy God. I should have thought that that might have been tricky to say. Uh, The basin, if you look at it, actually is very different to the altar in all sorts of ways. It's made of bronze. So what does that tell us? you remember your color coding about the tabernacle? Is it going to be in the holy place if it's made of bronze? No, thank you. It is going to be in the courtyard. You look in verse uh, 18. It's going to be positioned right in between uh, the burnt offering, the altar for the burnt offering, which if you remember Matthew explaining, you open up the tabernacle right there in front of you. There's the altar for the burnt offering. So every single Jew would know that access to God is only through the burnt offering. And just beyond that, between that and the most holy place, There is going to be this bronze basin. What's also different about the basin? There are no dimensions. Spot that? No cubits or any other descriptions of what's going on because that doesn't matter for this particular part of the tabernacle. So in Aaron and his son's days, that would probably have been relatively small. There weren't that many priests. When you get to Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 7, the basin for washing was so massive because of the number of priests and the size of the community. There were 10 basins, and if you read in our translation, it calls it a massive sea that was 14 meters in circumference with all of the water that was necessary for all of the priests to keep washing before their service. But for this item, size wasn't important. What was important was that the priests washed hands and feet all the time. Uh, Not just for good hygiene reasons, although when you (laughs) think about all the things that we thought being sacrificed last week, you'd be glad that they were washing their hands regularly, wouldn't you? But that's not the main reason for it. It's that they would be ceremonially clean. It wasn't just the altar of incense that needed to be clean once a year, day of atonement with the spreading of blood. Every single activity of these priests needed to be preceded by them cleaning themselves. Verse 20, whenever they entered the tent of meeting and whenever they approached the altar to minister, meaning anything that they did to serve and worship God, they needed to be washed clean for. Again, if you've been with us for a while, you will know that we are regularly flipping forwards into Hebrews as we work through the book of Exodus, because it's the most important book in the New Testament to help us understand what everything is pointing towards in Exodus in Jesus. 
And Hebrews explains to us what's going on with all of this regular foot, uh, hand and foot washing as well. Because ever since Jesus came, we have stopped needing a category of priest in the New Testament. He's the one great final priest of his people. Now when you get into the New Testament, it describes every single one of us who's a Christian as being part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and a chosen people. Which means every single one of you who loves and trusts Jesus has the same access as I do, as any of us does, to approach God spiritually. But how do we do that? How is that possible, given all of the stuff that you've done this day, this week, that I've done this day, this week? Does God just like not care about that anymore? No. The writer to the Hebrews explains how we, as part of the royal priesthood of believers, how we can have access to draw near to the most holy place. Hebrews 10. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We need to be washed as much as the priests needed. They did it physically. They went to a basin and they washed their hands and feet and then they did their acts of worship. We still need to be washed as much as they did, only our washing is done for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking, from heaven. Now, I want to pause there because it would be really easy to misread our responsibility here. Um, One of our struggles as New Testament Christians is we can oversimplify and simply conclude that the message to every Old Testament into the New Testament story is, Jesus has done it all, and on we go. And there's a sense in which you could do the same thing here. So you look at Hebrews 10, and God is telling us that the only way that we can draw near to God, though we can, is because Jesus himself, spiritually speaking, sprinkles us, washes us clean, so that we can approach the throne room of God. So you get to the end of the argument, the priest had to wash, Jesus washes us, Jesus is better, and on we go. But it's not the only connection that we need to see with Aaron's day and ours. Look back at verse 20. If the priests didn't take care to wash themselves, what didn't happen, too many negatives there, but you know what I mean, what didn't happen was, God downgraded their sacrifice. Okay, so imagine uh, Zechariah went off to make an offering, forgot to do the washing, and God accepted the offering, but decided he wouldn't treat Zechariah quite so favorably for a few days because he got the washing wrong. Look at verse 20. If they didn't wash, they died. That's how serious this act of worship was. And at which point we might think, oh, really glad we don't have any of those serious problems going on in the new covenant. That's just an old covenant thing. It's a whole lot easier being a new covenant Christian. Well, yes and no. We, um, 
I led our morning service too long this morning. That one's on me. I'm sorry. If we'd had more time, I would have read more of 1 Corinthians 11. This is in the New Covenant. This is what Paul says to Christians in the way that we take bread and wine. We're still doing that. We did it this morning. This is what he goes on to say. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's the Bible's language for died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. That's not an old covenant warning. That's a new covenant warning. Alec Matea had a very clear way of describing what this means for us. He says this, even though the New Testament commands self-examination only as preparation for the Lord's table, dare we enter that holy presence at any time without thoughtful confession, without taking up the word of God to allow its sanctifying truth to shower upon us, permeate our beings, and bring us all over again into obedience and sanctification. I think we can all relate to that. It is so easy as new covenant Christians to treat our access to God too lightly. And be really, really careful with what I'm saying here. You don't have to use certain language to pray to God. You don't have to do, in fact, you cannot do anything to make it possible to come to God. Jesus has dealt with all of that. And that blood that enables every single one of us with all of our bumbling, imperfect prayers to come to God is sufficient. But when we're through the door, so to speak, how do we speak? How do we prepare our hearts when we come to worship? I haven't read it yet, but one of my best mates from seminary posted an article in the Gospel Coalition called Five Ways to Prepare Your Heart for Worship or something. His name's Alex Mark. I've not read it, but I know him dearly. I assume it will be good. If you've not thought about how you prepare for worship, maybe jump onto that website and have a read of Alex's comments. We need to remember who we're coming to worship. And that's not just a we come on a Sunday, and maybe if you're really keen twice on a Sunday thing, we know as new covenant Christians that we're coming to worship God in everything that we do during every part of our lives. So when you open your Bible tomorrow for your devotion, maybe there's a window to pause beforehand and think, Jesus, thank you for making it possible for me to come to the throne of grace. When you're praying about a situation in work this week, or in your family, whatever it is that God has called you to be responsible for this week, and you approach his throne of grace because you need his help and his wisdom, do not hesitate. Jesus is sufficient. Don't worry about perfect words. Jesus is sufficient. But remember that he's brought you into the presence of a holy God. 
And he is still as holy as he ever was. Thirdly and finally, we get to the atonement money. And what I think we're to see here is that we are ransomed to serve a holy God. Now, when you think about all the tabernacle worship stuff that's been going on for the last few chapters, verses 11 to 16 do probably jump out and make you think, this doesn't really seem to fit. What's, why is this included here? Well, the answer to that specific question is verse 16. So the money raised from this process is used to help the priests service and run the tabernacle. That's why this is included at this point. This is all part of God's overarching instruction for how he is to be worshipped in the tabernacle. But I don't think that's our main reason for struggling with this text here. I think, and I might be wrong, many of us struggle with this text because we don't think God's people should ever count numbers of themselves. And perhaps a a good number of you are thinking, hang on a minute, I'm sure something went wrong with David when he counted his soldiers. That passage, if you want to look at it when you get home, is 2 Samuel 24. And David gave his orders to Joab and the other commanders of the army to go and count the number of soldiers. Now, Joab is not your super faithful, super holy kind of guy. But even Joab says to David, why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? David overruled him. Everybody did the counting. And afterwards, David realized It was a sinful thing to do. God gave him a choice. And David chose that God would send a plague that in three days killed 70,000 Jews. Now, doesn't that mean 2 Samuel 24 proves that God prohibits his people from ever counting numbers of themselves? Yes, it would if we didn't have passages like Exodus 30. Because God has made it very clear, as verse 12 begins, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them. Clearly, counting the Jews in and of itself isn't sinful, because here the Lord's providing what the Jews were to do when they did it. Whatever's going on in 2 Samuel 24, there must have been more about the issue that was a problem between God and the Lord. And if you read the beginning of the chapter, clearly there is. That means that that census was sinful. But here, God is clearly showing, verse 12, that every census isn't sinful. But there is a danger in counting. And that's what verse 12 is telling us. If the people didn't pay the ransom price, God would send a plague on them, just like he did in David's day. So the problem's not the counting. The problem's how you disobey God's provision when you do the counting. And that's what was going on in 2 Samuel 24. So what's happening? Verses 11 to 16. Loads of stuff we're not told. And we just need to be guarded about that and accept that God hasn't told us. So why is it that the payment of money secures a ransom? How does that atonement work? What is it that's being saved here? We don't know. That's okay, because God's not told us. But he does tell us two really important things. First one's this. Every Jewish census reminded the Jews that they belonged to the Lord. It's a long time since Christmas. I can hardly remember 
the presence that I was given. There is no possibility any of you will remember what I preached on Christmas Eve. But we did talk about the census that Caesar Augustus uh, required in Jesus' day that required Mary and Joseph to go off to Bethlehem. And if, on the off chance, anybody can remember anything I said there, I couldn't, I had to look back. And there are only two purposes for a census in the ancient Near East. One was to recruit soldiers, and the other was to raise taxes. Now, we are not told in Exodus 30 what the purpose of this allotment money was. But it clearly isn't to raise taxes. Because the only revenue that's going to come from this particular offering is going to go straight to the priests to look after the temple. And if, if it may have been for counting troops before battle, that didn't work for the Jews the same way it did for other nations. And we need to remember that. Because the great danger in 2 Samuel 24, I think, and the great danger as you go through the rest of the narrative of their conquest of the promised land, was that the Israelites shouldn't put their trust in numbers. Their trust was, into, was to be in God himself and not in their numbers. So every now and then, God would send them into battle and say, how many people have you got there? No, that's way too many. I want half of that. 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 Until you realize, this is a piddly number of people to go and take over a city. We are only going to do it because God is great, not our numbers. Okay, so slightly different way of thinking about how you would count your soldiers. But maybe that's part of what's going on. What we do know is verse 16. God commanded all of this as a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord. What is this whole process going to prove to them? Every single half shekel that they give goes to God's service because they belong to him. They didn't belong to any king. They didn't belong to any ruler. They didn't belong to any man-made government. The Jews belonged to God. Second thing, every Jewish census reminded the Jews that every life is equally precious before God. This census, verse 14, was only for men aged 20 and over, which as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, that's the fighting age. So that's another reason why a good number of people think what's going on here is a census that helps them understand the size of their army. But every single person who volunteered and is counted is paid the, pays the same amount. It's the same half shekel. The rich don't pay more. The poor don't pay less. Everyone pays the same amount because you can't buy preferential treatment from God. Every single one of those people was viewed the same. They are equally precious before God. Now you think of all the differences between Exodus 30 and Leamington 2024. So many differences that may mean you get to a passage like this and think, none of this has got any relevance for me because none of my taxes in that sense go to the church and it's more than a half shekel and, and on and on you could go and think this is all very distant and disconnected. But look at those two lessons of the key meaning of what this allotment money is talking about. Every single person in this church belongs to God. Not to any man-made structure, not under any national government. Ultimately, every single one of us belongs to God. 
And we don't know enough about what's going on with the ransom money. We don't know how that functioned. We know that the ultimate atonement, that the New Testament parallels with Jesus in the Old Testament, is the day of atonement. But we also know, big picture, that the only way any of us belong to God is because he has sent his son to die for us. Christian, you belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every single one of us is equally precious before him. Matthew reminded us this morning so helpfully that there is just so much tribalism going on in our world. And it's not just that you belong over here, you belong over there, you're in favor of this, you're not. It's a waiting. It's a valuation system. It's a you're more important, less important, less worthy, more worthy worldview. What are we reminded when we come into the New Testament? Every single Christian is covered by the blood of the Lamb and all are equally precious before God. I think in many ways we know that as a church family. But I pray that we would have more opportunities to show it. It's been a wonderful thing. I hope it's encouraged you in recent months as we have seen more and more people from different countries and ethnicities come into our church family. Something that I was praying for before I came to this church more than six and a half years ago. God would bring in some people from all the other nations to remind us of God's purpose for the church. We'd love it if the Lord would increasingly bring people with different educational needs or special needs so that we could show them that God loves them just as much as he loves every single person in our church family. A very wonderful, countercultural way of showing how every single person is loved because they are made in the image of God and every person who is redeemed is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All of us belong to the Lord and are equally precious in his sight.